Subscribe to The Spectator this Christmas and get the next 12 weeks of print and online access as well as a bottle of Paul Roger champagne, all for just £12. This offer is available in the UK only. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Santa to subscribe. Welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and James Heal. 2022. What a year we've had. As we head towards the Christmas break, we thought it'd be good to have a moment to pause and reflect. Isabel, where should we start? I suppose if we go back to the beginning of the year. I mean, we had Owen Patterson end of... 2021, which which I suppose was the first signs, I think, really, that things were really turning for Boris Johnson. And then Partygate started to begin. Do you think there was a sense in January that Boris Johnson would be out before the year was out? Gosh, looking back that long, I think... It feels like more than a year, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, it does. I think by that stage, it was sort of... The wheels hadn't come off, but I think the hubcaps and some sort of, you know, there were probably some nails in the tyres at this point as well. And I think the conclusions that we were reaching just under a year ago in early January 2022 were that Boris Johnson was not going to have the easy reforming premiership that we thought he was going to have when he won that majority in the 2019 election. Obviously, that had initially been paused by COVID, but it was becoming quite clear that Whatever the global events, the big problem for Boris Johnson was Boris Johnson and the decisions he made around the people who he hired, who he chose to back, who he chose to listen to, and indeed the decisions he made in his personal life. Now, not in the sense that when people say Boris Johnson's personal life, everyone thinks about his you know, his relationships but actually, you know, the, the saga of the number 11 flat redecoration being one example and also his attendance at various parties or cake cuttings during the pandemic. I, I, that's the sort of personal decisions that I mean, that actually his his judgment about things that didn't need to trip him up was already really in question and talked to Tory MPs who were really bruised by what happened with the Patterson row, who were sort of saying, you know, we we can't really trust him in the way that we used to trust him, even in the sort of transactional way that we used to trust him. So he was starting the year on a really rocky note, but I think there was still a conviction amongst his team that he could keep things going. A bit like when I accidentally hit a rock whilst driving and was able to keep going down the road with the sound of the metal bit on my car wheel grinding against the tarmac. I think that's where they were at that stage. <laughs> yeah, it definitely felt as though after the Patterson debacle and how people thought we marched up the hill only to be, you know, much down and humiliated, MPs didn't really have any trust particularly in number 10's wisdom but also I think particularly the 2019 intake had seen Boris Johnson as the guy he knew best after that victory in 2019 were of the view that no this is no longer someone that we can you know have blind faith in though perhaps they all should have read the report anyway. (laughs) James so there were many points I think and obviously this year 
we're on our first leader. We need to get to our third before this podcast ends. <laughs> but th- there were moments of, you know, where it looked as though Boris Johnson really could be on the edge when it came to Partygate. So you had the release of that ITV video at the press conference. That's when Partygate really went from a story that was a problem for the government to one that actually felt as though it had the potential to collapse the government in its current form. But again, Boris Johnson was scrape free. Lots of other people would be collateral. What do you think was the moment where it really started to look like things were shot? Was it that confidence vote? Because there were so many times it looked as though we spent most of this year talking about letters to Graham Brady for different leaders. Um, but there were, there were so many times people said they might hit the number and they didn't. Then they do hit the number. And yet I remember in the day, I know you were covering it too, figures in number 10 being really dismissive about the vote because they knew they'd win it, which isn't really all the confidence vote is about. Yeah, I think that once the vote is called, that's basically game up, as we saw with Theresa May and we saw it this year as well. And it was a worse margin than Theresa May. Yeah, by far. And, you know, it was always going to survive for a year. I mean, really? When you've got 150 MPs in your party and you've only won an election 18 months previously? I think it was a cumulative effect thing, really. I think basically Tory MPs kind of made an unspoken pact, which was that they invested so much capital in party getting defending the Prime Minister, they couldn't bring him down over that. So Ultimately, it was that, it was the lack of the electoral appeal, the magic had gone, in those words of Francis Urquhart. And they thought, if we, we can't trust him, and he's not going to win us some of these elections, there were those two by-elections, of course, as well, the Wakefield and, and Tiverton one. And then, of course, the, the Chris Pincher thing sort of finished him off. But I think it was basically the party gate coming off the back of the own Patterson row, really got rid of a lot of that goodwill. The magic was gone, and thereafter, it was just waiting for something to finish him off. And then the time actually comes, and as ever in politics, there's never the event you perhaps expect as it is about. So it was all about Partygate and letters, and then really the event that triggered its collapse was Chris Pincher. At what moment covering it did you think, you know, this is about to go from being a row about sexual harassment to something which ends a prime minister? Yeah, it was interesting because I think by that point, we'd all got so used to Boris Johnson getting into these almighty rouse and somehow surviving them that there was a sort of a collective hesitation that this isn't going to be the thing that finishes him off you know (laughs) he'll get out of this somehow and again there was you know poor handling of it initially and the thing that sort of added gunpowder to all of this was the fact that there were lots of people who may or may not have worked with Boris Johnson previously but changed their minds about his qualities as a leader who then brief the media about comments that Johnson had made previously about that sort of suggested that he knew that Chris Pincher was potentially not the right person to make deputy chief whip and then the the moment at which it became clear that this was now untenable not just to those of us reporting on it but to members of the Conservative Party who were sort of wavering about where this was going to go was when Simon MacDonald uh, former permanent undersecretary at the uh, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, then basically phoned into the Today programme to contradict claims that were being made about Boris Johnson's knowledge of Chris Pincher's alleged behaviour. And at that point, you could just see the shift in MPs' attitudes. And I remember talking to someone who until the very small hours of the night before Boris Johnson resigned, was still trying to get things back together and was still trying to sort of, you know, was still on Boris Johnson's side, basically, who said to me after that, I mean, I think it's over and we just need to work out how to exit this in the most dignified way possible. Now, it transpired that Boris Johnson was not prepared to listen to that person or a number of other people 
who were trying to offer him exit routes throughout the following 24 hours. And so we had an extremely undignified exit by the Prime Minister. And, I mean, we've had so many of these really dramatic nights in Westminster where it's not really safe to... Oh, it's not really safe to sort of blow your nose, let alone pop to the ladies, because something else might happen. I remember I've just gone to collect my son from nursery just before the nursery shut its doors and uh, walked out clutching my son and suddenly <laughs> Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak had resigned. And so <laughs> thrust my son back into my husband's arms and ran back to work. And that was that, was that night. It, from then on, from the moment when those two resigned, all hell broke loose, basically. And we were getting resignations, you know, throughout the night and then I remember I think it was Helen Wakeley who resigned at like 6.20am the next morning when the resignation started up again because you had groups of ministers who were waiting on more senior colleagues or colleagues who they trusted so they could resign in groups and some of them sort of lost their patience and decided to resign earlier and we just had these waves and waves of resignations until the point if you remember that you know Boris Johnson was trying to replace ministers and sacking some ministers like Michael Gove trying to replace ministers with people who basically like probably wouldn't have got like a work experience job in the government let alone actual ministers and that was when it started to get really slightly crazy that's no way to speak about peter bone james i want to move on to liz truss but just before we do were you were you having to man our list of updating the resignations yes. in that period? Well, I broke a scoop. I think broke Ed Arga resigning. I think it was number 67 or something. <laughs> Utterly indifferent. I tweeted that out. got like three likes, one retweet or something. Because there were so many of them. There were dozens. And it was, as Isabel said, you'd go to bed, you'd wake up and there'd be more people. More wonderful names with double-barreled surnames you'd never heard of who were quitting the government. And for me, my favourite memory of that was the liaison committee hearing where Boris Johnson was there. Almost like sort of, you know, the, the Spartans in three hundred there as all the bric a brats was going. Darren Jones was showing him his phone saying, There's a senior cabinet delegation waiting for you at number ten. And Boris is going, Well, you know, so you tell me. And he's like, No, no, they're all there. And Adim Zahawi and everyone was there after just a day in cabinet telling him to go. And it really was quite something else. It was extraordinary. But I was running the list, yes, and we will never see that number of resignations again, I don't think. And it was never only- know. Well, <laughs> good luck, Rishi. I mean, it was dozens and dozens, and it was it was quite extraordinary. It took that effort to get Boris Johnson out of power, but um, extraordinary times. And then from there, we go quite quickly into a Tory leadership contest. I think the parading started at the Spectator Summer Party that night. <laughs> Isabel, do we have a sense? Because one of the things that kept Boris Johnson safe for so long, the safe might be going too far, but in position, was, was the fact that Tory MPs just did not know who they thought his successor should be. And while actually more people thought Rishi Sunak, the non-Dom Rao, actually led people to think, I mean, lots of people at the time are saying he can never be prime minister now. So that made Boris Johnson seem even more as though he at least had that on his side. So do you think there was much of a sense that this was likely to be a Liz Truss victory when when the contest was first called? Or did it just feel like a really mixed bag? Well, don't forget that the Liz Truss was on a plane for a lot of this drama. And I remember at our Spectator Summer Party, I mean, I remember there were lots of people who'd worked with Boris Johnson or, you know, were, were close allies who were sort of walking around with like three drinks in each hand. And then I remember someone coming up to me out of the, the crush in our in the Spectator Garden, there's always a, a particular bit of the garden which is very sort of knotty and everyone, it's very difficult to get through. Someone coming out of the crush and going, people are going wild for Nadim in there. Because Nadim Zahawi was one of the big names at that stage in the leadership contest. He's had a year. Yeah, he's, he's had a big year. And uh, 
I think it, at that stage, there were still lots of people, and indeed throughout the contest, who were saying, no, no, anyone but Liz Truss. And actually, that was one of the, the other reasons why people have been reluctant about a leadership contest, because they were saying, well, you know, with Rishi wounded, we'll end up with someone like Liz Truss, and we don't want that. The party disagreed with that and then realised that actually perhaps those people had a point just a month later. So, yeah, I mean, there had been a vanity parade, a, a beauty parade for quite a long time prior to Boris Johnson's fall being inevitable. And people like Liz Truss had obviously been very well organised about this with the, you know, the fizz with Liz events to try to woo Conservative MPs. And the membership had always consistently really liked her as well. And so even though she was stuck in a in a plane for, for some of the, the most dramatic moments, that actually showed that it didn't really make much difference in terms of getting out of the blocks early or not, because she'd already been working long before a leadership contest had been announced. And the key question of this podcast really is, James, here, at what point did you think, I'm writing a Liz Truss biography? Was it before she did one? Was it the parliamentary stages? When did that conversation start to take place and you thought, this is the person I want to spend most of my year studying? I think it was a fortnight before she won. And my co-author approached me at a well-known Westminster venture and said, uh, let's write a book. And we started writing it on August so, 20th. Because I suppose it seemed... Because if it's two weeks before she won, there was a point, wasn't there, during the membership stage where it, it really looked as though there was there was very little chance for Rishi Sunak. I mean, do you remember that first YouGov poll? And I think she was ahead by 30 points or so. I mean, it was kind of all over. And so we had this really protracted leadership contest, which was which I don't think we'll see the likes of again in government for a sitting party, where there were all these hustings across the country and it was clear who was going to win. And I think actually the second leadership contest, the October contest, as opposed to the July one, was a reaction to that. And obviously people wanted a quick decision and didn't want to go members. But uh, I started writing the book on August 20th and we finished October the 24th, the day uh, Liz Truss left Downing Street. And Isabel, things have moved so quickly that in a way I probably think the not so many budget has been covered in so much depth in terms of Obviously, the chaos that ensued after it is clearly the moment Liz Truss's premiership just turned. And there are warning signs before in terms of how they plan to, you know, have her cabinet, the fact it was loyalty, the briefings about Michael Gove going to political Siberia, that this wasn't going to be a government, you know, it's reaching out across a delicate situation. But I wondered, when we now look at the period where obviously Liz Truss resigns and actually doesn't really go with much of a fight, unlike Boris Johnson, she sees that, you know, really the game is up and... and goes on Graham Brady's suggestion. What do you think went most wrong for Liz Truss in terms of her biggest mistakes? I mean, obviously there's a mini budget, but was it not listening to people? Was it team? Was it something else? The quote I keep coming back to, actually, is not the political Siberia Michael Gove line, but one that you had, I think it was in your iPaper column, Katie, where someone close to Truss said, this government has balls of steel. And yes, a spectator blog, yes. And that was the day before the mini budget. Yes. And I, and, they, and I was wondering what they were alluding to, but they were saying she's worried about running out of time and this government has balls of steel. Yeah, and so I remember reading that, thinking that is a fantastic quote for you to have got because it just sums up so much of the problems in Westminster, which is that people basically think that they can talk their way through any situation just by, you know, it's a bit like when you're sort of 
you know, it's school or university and there's someone who spends three years talking about how clever they are and then they end up getting a 2-2. It's sort of, you're suddenly shocked that actually the person who talks a good game is not necessarily the most intelligent or indeed the most effective political leader. And I just remember sort of reading that thinking, okay, well, we'll we'll just see whether the ball of steel actually turns out to be a, you know, a wrecking ball that ends up coming back to to smash up the things that you care about the most. And we've got it in this podcast go to James's first-hand account of the night when the wheels really came off because I remember going up to the bar of a party at about, must have been about 11 o'clock, with a bunch of Tory MPs who were pro-truss, who were saying, you know, we're not going to U-turn on this tax policy. The thing about Liz is that she, you know, I don't think they said balls of steel, but they said she's got a steely personality. She's not the kind of person who will U-turn, so we're quite happy to go out and defend this. And I think I left at about half midnight and suddenly got this message from James saying there's going to be a U-turn on the tax rate. And I thought, oh, James is just drunk. But actually, James had a ringside seat on what was going on. So you have to tell us about this because it was... I think that was, you know, one of the moments of the year. Well, it was it was upstairs midnight at the conference hotel bar. So the chairman's drinks. Yes, yeah. chairman's drinks. And I was invited up with a bunch of other journos and senior ministers, all rather enjoying this, thinking, gosh, this is how the other half live. You know, it was great fun. And then I hear a sort of commotion outside and a glass of champagne in hand. I go outside and I see my co-author, Harry Cole, having a stand-up row with a very senior Downing Street spokesperson and uh, they're going back and forth and he said we're running it we're running it unless you deny it now and the official gave some non-committal answer and Harry said we're running it now we're going to press it now and make it back and forth several times it was like watching some verbal tennis and then as the official left the scene Harry chased him put his foot in the lift was like we're going to run this now and it's about half midnight at this point and I realised obviously by the conversation this is going to be the 45p tax cut and at that point Harry makes a call tees up the story press publish bang and there's a sort of eruption throughout the room. I should say at this point, one person who was hosting came out and said, who wants more champagne? Which I just thought was a sort of glorious kind of on-the-nose reference to how things were going. And um, at that point, uh, yeah, the whole ripple through the room. One serving minister put their glass down and said, thanks, Harry, you've ruined my conference, and marched off into the night to find out what on earth was going wrong. <laughs> but it was just an extraordinary sight where we'd seen one of the prime minister's you know, top people having a stand-up row in full glaze of a sort of you know, room full of hacks and ministers. And you just got a sense of not knowing what on earth was happening because this was breaking at 12.30 on the first night of conference. And thereafter, it completely dominated the whole thing. And you saw Michael Gove and Grant Shapps doing the rounds, sort of uh, tarting themselves about. It was, it, was, it was extraordinary. And I remember I had three separate Tory MPs come up to me and go, oh, you better hurry up with that book then, which was a sort of not very original joke. But um, it, was, it was, you know, I remember on the last night of conference to bookend it was the LGB Tories disco. A year before Liz Truss had been fated there. She was there dancing to Beyonce, feature on many a Tory uh, staffer's uh, Instagram story and then this year it was just a sense of utter utter complete black humour resignation the things can only get better came on the new Labour anthem and there was an ironic cheer that rippled through the uh, the Manchester Gay Club and uh, one sort of aide turned to me and went no they won't and things never got better for her after that yeah it was I think speaking to those who are working closely with Trust now and they just referred to that conference I think as even though you afterwards obviously had Quasi Kotam being sacked. I think that conference was probably, I think it was probably the most hellish point in terms of everything just being in free fall. The line just wouldn't No hold. direction coming really in terms of from the Prime Minister, someone who was constantly changing their mind. And I think when certain people were, you know, suggesting, well, because if you look at the 45p and things, 
if we are going to U-turn, let's do it before the print deadlines so you don't upset all these national editors. But also, why don't you U-turn on the Sunday morning Laura Koonsberg show rather than have a situation where you've just said you're not going to U-turn and then train wise but And it just added to this sense of chaos. And I think another thing was, in the days after the mini-budget, it was almost eerie how calm some of the people quite close to Liz Truss seemed and perhaps even Liz Truss herself and I think when you had conferences just a week or so after it I think it's quite easy when you're in Downing Street easy with the wrong word but you are disconnected because you're not in parliament seeing your party all the time and I think that going to conference is probably for perhaps the Prime Minister at the time herself, but also for those around her, it's when the penny slightly drops because you're suddenly having to confront and see all these people and therefore you can't, whatever spinning you might want to do, you're not going to get there. Now, we are nearing the end of this quite bumper podcast because it's been a year. And so so we just have to move on to the current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. Now, on this podcast every day, we are looking at what the government is doing. So I suppose in terms of the review aspect... Let's just look at the second Tory leadership contest of the year. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was a little bit different to the first one of the year. Much less debate. I don't think we heard from Rishi Sunak once in public before he was selected. And you also did have Penny Morden. And of course, the attempted or at least the consideration of a return of Boris Johnson. I wondered, it feels like those around Boris Johnson take the view that if only Liz Truss could just hung on a bit longer perhaps not had had such a you know abrupt end but also such a catastrophic one it should just been below par and perhaps got to the locals there would have been a much better path back for Boris Johnson do you think it was a case of the wrong timing for Boris Johnson that leadership contest or actually are the Tory party never really going to want him back yeah I think it's interesting the different views of Boris Johnson's allies who will always I think think he was robbed and think that there could be an opportunity for him to come back and rescue the party. And the views of, I'd say, the majority of Tory MPs, which is that he did a good thing for them in winning a majority. He then did a lot of bad things for them and that they're still basically trying to recover from what he did to the party and what the circumstances of his departure did to the party. And I don't think we've really... I don't think they've fully had the chance to unravel psychologically from what happened I've always found it fascinating how a guaranteed way to make a burly conservative MP who is not visibly in touch with their emotions cry is to talk about the final days of Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister because they are still really emotional about the way in which some in the party treated her and how that all felt it's still really visceral for for some conservatives and I remember talking to someone who'd witnessed those days who was pro Boris Johnson who said you know he's gonna go but it's gonna take the party a long time to recover from this because you just think of how my colleagues talk about Margaret still now and I thought gosh yeah that I mean that has been quite a long time and so given all the events that then followed in the months afterwards, the party hasn't really had a chance to sort of pause, which is why I think even if Rishi Sunak manages to give the Conservatives a dignified defeat at the next election, which I think is probably the most likely scenario rather than a sort of total wipeout, there may be some kind of mental breakdown in the party afterwards as they attempt to 
come to terms with what's happened over the past few years. Maybe they'll do a Netflix documentary. Who knows? I mean, you know, worse things have been broadcast recently. Now, for the final question on this podcast, which is for both of you, I'm going to ask you to make a 2023 prediction. I realise this is putting something on the spot. But I want to know how many prime ministers do you think there will be in 2023? One. UK Prime Ministers, one, okay. I'd say one. We're obviously recording just before 2023, so just for clarity, that is Rishi Sunak we're talking about. <laughs> yes, I just think that it would be difficult to kind of top this. And I think both with Sunak and Starmer, we've got two leaders who basically want kind of some kind of managerial consensus. So um, I would be very surprised if we see more than that, but um, strange things have happened. Isabel? Yeah, I agree with James. Okay, there we go. Okay, well, when we're back next year talking about the year of five prime ministers. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think most likely Rishi Sunak can now lead the Tories into the next election. And the only thing would be if you get a surprise 2023 election and then everything would suggest that's a Keir Starmer win. But at the same time, I don't know why the Tories would have any desire to have an election next year of all the problems shaping up so with that thank you james thank you isabel and thank you for listening and while we have you here if you enjoy this podcast i mean you don't have to enjoy it, but ideally if you enjoy it please do rate and review we really appreciate it and we enjoy all the feedback <laughs>